All right. Book of Nahum, very short, minor prophet book, interesting. It is the companion book to Jonah. If you were here last week, uh, we did Jonah and the whale, and it was a little bit cute, but it was, an off, it was a lot heavy, right? If you were here, you understand me. It was like, what? This is, this is, this is hard stuff. Because Jonah, he, he hated their stinking guts. And, and then, again, like, it's easy for us to judge him. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't Jonah want to be nice to people? And then, you know, I just put it into historical context. The Assyrians were the worst people on the planet. They, they, they had established um, a powerful empire, one of the first world empires that we've seen. And so in light of what everything that Jonah had gone through, what he had seen, the violence, the, the violence and the, the, this, the degrading culture that the Assyrian people produced, yeah, it's like no wonder he hated them. Like, I hate them, and I wasn't even there. And Nahum is the companion book. Nahum is a, he's a prophet probably a couple generations after Jonah, but I think that they were roommates. I, I think that they were in the college dorm together because, because Nahum, it seems as if he hates these guys too. But Nahum, unlike Jonah, Jonah was a prophet, but Jonah did not prophesy. We get to hear about Jonah's story. Now, Nahum is different because Nahum is, when we read the book of Nahum, he is functioning as, as a, as a um, typical prophet, and he's working both in, his, in a historical context and a prophetic con- context. He, 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 he illustrates the fact that the Assyrians have expanded their empire beyond Iran and Iraq. They've, they've conquered Israel. They've even conquered Thebes. Thebes is in, in Egypt. And not only did they conquer it through, if you are here last week, through brutal terror warfare, like psychological terror. That, is, that was their means of success, was psychological terror. Um, so not only were they successful, okay, keep him, okay, have you, have you seen pictures? I have not been to Egypt. I, I, that is, that's on my bucket list. Um, when I was in Israel, they didn't let me go because people were blowing up tour buses in Egypt. So I didn't get to go. Um, but maybe in about a year from now, we'll be going to Israel. And if you want to go, let me know. I'm starting to put the trip together. Maybe they'll go to Egypt. Probably not. But maybe. Maybe I'll sneak off and just go by myself. Um, but, I mean, if, you've, you know, if you watch the History Channel, you know how wealthy Egypt was. The Assyrians sacked Egypt. And they took all of the wealth, except for what was left by you know, King Tutankhamun, what they couldn't find, what they could not dig up. They took it all. They took everything out of Egypt. They took everything out of Israel. They took everything out of Iraq and Iran and Persia. They looted on the Mediterranean, everything. You know, their, their systematic style of warfare was so successful that they were beyond wealth. I mean, it was just, it's mind-blowing. Here's the interesting, let's read a little bit about Nahum, because we get to see, uh, we see God's character come through, we see, there, there's probably, obviously, there's some uh, animosity that's coming through from Nahum, but this is really God's heart. We're going to see God's heart come through, and we're going to see his character, and we're going to see what happens to Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria. Chapter 1, verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. All right, that's kind of tough right there. Actually, the first part's okay with me. 
I actually want God to be jealous. I mean, isn't jealousy like this really base emotion? Like, I mean, people that you know that are jealous, isn't that kind of like petty, right? So is therefore God petty? I don't think so. Like, I'm, I'm crazy in love with my wife, and I'm jealous of our time. Like, if she found some other good-looking guy to hang out with, um, I would have both of these emotions. Jealousy and vengeance, <laughs> I think. I just would. It doesn't matter how long I've been walking with the Lord. That is what the emotion that's going to come up with in my, in my, in my soul. And God's, it's really hard to get our heads around God, but you got to understand, he has a heart for you, and he is jealous for us. And so when something else gets our affections, of course he's going to be jealous. I wouldn't want to serve a God that was not jealous. I wouldn't want to be married to a spouse that just treated my affections flippantly. Does that make sense? What if your spouse didn't care if you loved you or not? Oh, honey, I don't care if you go bowling again or play golf again. Or I don't, yeah, I don't want to hang out with you either, so just go away. Well, how would you, maybe that's your marriage, I don't know. But what could you imagine if that was the tone of your relationship with the person that you're supposed to be living with? Well, what would it be like if that was the tone of God's affections for you? I don't care what you do. I created you, I created the planets, I spun this stuff off, and I'm just going to back away from history, I'm going to back away from your life, because I really don't care. I created you, but I really don't care what you do. I thank God that our God is not like that. I thank God that he's a jealous God, that he has, his affections for me are so deep. Whenever something else gets my attention, he's like, I don't, I'm not okay with that. I have feelings, too. Uh, scripture is very clear that the Holy Spirit has feelings. You can grieve the Holy Spirit, and you can quench the Holy Spirit. You don't want to do either of those. But it's like, Holy Spirit has emotions? Absolutely. It's a weird thought to think about, but that's what happens. All right, so he's, uh, the Lord takes vengeance on his foes. He's talking about Nineveh. And maintains his wrath against his enemies. This is heavy stuff. I know. I thought God's supposed to be loving. Just hang with me. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. That's good. And the Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His ways is in the whirlwind and the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. I love this. Nahum is, um, this book, it's kind of, we lose something in translation, unfortunately. But Bible scholars view Nahum as one of the most uh, powerful poetic books in the prophetic books. It is, it's the most vivid, it's the most vibrant. Um, it, it, and we read it, it's going to, it comes across really strong. But I love this, that his ways, that God's ways is in the whirlwind. God's a crazy guy. You can't quite control him. He is in the storm. Have you ever tried to control God? Like, you think that you're controlling God, but really, he is wild. You can't get him. Okay, he rebukes the sea, and he dries it up. He's referencing Moses here. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel, they wither. Those are mountains. And 
The blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence. All right. Creation itself trembles at the presence of God. Mountains melt away. Man, I, I don't know. I, I don't know about you, but me, I think to myself, am I trembling before the presence of God? Like, how disconnected am I that when I'm in God's presence, I feel nothing? That's a thought to think about. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. Heavy stuff. Here is what uh, Nahum is famous for, and this is the, the famous verse in Nahum. The Lord is good and a refuge in times of trouble. That is a promise for you today, that God is good. And he is that... Re- well, anybody having trouble? Yeah. Then you get to choose whether you're going to allow him to be your refuge. And when he is your refuge, you rest in his safety. But that is the choice that you have to make. He cares for those, and this is important, who trust in him. You want to be safe? You want that security? You want that peace that transcends understanding? You have to trust in him. I think that is probably one of the most difficult things that we can try to get our heads around. Trusting in the Lord, because it's a lot easier to trust in our own abilities. It's a lot easier to trust in our character or our drive or our will. And I, for some reason, we think that if, we, if we're so vulnerable to put our trust in the Lord, that he will let us down. It's hard, isn't it? Just to be the trustful, the spiritual trustful. I love those trustfalls that you see on YouTube where somebody actually falls on the ground. And like spiritually, we think that that's going to happen to us. We think that God is going to drop us. And he's not. He will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into darkness. Whatever, the, whatever they plot against the Lord, he will bring an end to it. Trouble will not come a second time. They will be entangled among the thorns and drunk from their wine. They will be consumed like dry stubble. Down to 14. The Lord has given a command concerning Nineveh. You will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the carved images. These are the things that we put our trust in, by the way. I will destroy the carved images and the cast idols that are in the temple of your gods, and I will prepare your grave, for you are vile. Doesn't that make you feel good? You had to be here last week because they were vile. But yet God loved them and God saved them. Here we go. Here's Jesus in the book of Nam. Every, every line is supposed to point to Jesus. Every book is supposed to point to Jesus. The gospel of the good news of the God that saves, and if you were here last week, the God that saves the Ninevites, the worst people on the planet, God saves them. And here's what we get. It says, look there on the mountains, the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace. 
Celebrate your festivals, O Judah, and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade. They will be completely destroyed. We were here last week. I told you that Jonah reluctantly goes into Nineveh and he preaches the world's lousiest message. And they received it. And they repented. And their leader was saved. And then a couple generations later, we have Nahum giving a prophetic word that Nineveh will be wiped off the map, that they're going to pay the consequences of their sins. What is going on here? It even says that they, they, their name will be no more. Here's the interesting point. This happened to me this week. I, was, um, I, was, I went to get lunch on Wednesday, and one of my favorite places to go is Zaki's Mediterranean Food. Have you ever been there? There's one on Indian Hill right below the freeway. There's another one that's on, it's on a Foothill and Upland by Starbucks on Mulberry. And then there's another one, the original one, is on Carnelian in Altaloma, right below the 210 freeway. And so I, I visit this place quite frequently. And if you've been there, you'll notice that on the wall, there is a, there's a scripture. I think it's, I think it's Matthew 24. I, I keep on forgetting. But they have, a, they have a scripture for their business. And it's in a really elaborate, Baroque-style, gaudy frame with a really flamboyant font. So I'm like, are you guys Christians? They said, yes. Are you guys Orthodox? And they said, yes. There, I, can, I can tell the denomination by the font that they use for their <laughs> scriptures. I said, what kind of Orthodox are you? He says, we're Assyrian Christians. So do we have a contradiction here? I don't think so. Because Nahum isn't specifically talking about the Assyrian people. He is talking about a principality that has invaded a culture, a demonic presence that ruled the world that God is indignant towards. So, yeah, it's very historical. Actually, in the 1800s, um, archaeologists, they discovered the city of Nineveh. Before that, I mean, it was all in the Bible, and it was all in some other obscure texts. You know what they thought? They thought that Nineveh was a mythological city, that it was like Shangri-La or Atlantis, like it didn't exist. And then the Brits found it in the 1800s, and they stole it all and put it in the British Museum. Probably a good thing, because we have it. We have it historically preserved. I know that's like a cultural big giant mess, but um, I'm glad that they have it because ISIS probably would have blown our, the artifacts up. So that, I'm sorry, getting off track there. But, but my point is, is that Nineveh got, <laughs> Nahum was right to a certain extent because there was nothing left of Nineveh after the Babylonians got done with it. Like they leveled it, a, a city full of 140,000 people, the largest city that the world had seen at that point, the most advanced civilization that the world had seen. 
They have pictures, I showed you pictures last week, of, of ancient tanks that they had invented. Uh, they invented scuba gear so that they could dive under moats. They, they advanced their chariots. They, they invented blitzkrieg warfare. They invented crucifixion. They, had, they took major leaps in astronomy. They were, they were geniuses. They were workaholics. There's a couple of things that we can see from Nahum, some of the important pieces. Uh, they will be entangled among thorns uh, and drunk from their vines. Okay? Um, now I lost it. Sorry, folks. Well, I told you about Thebes. They had so much gold and so much uh, silver that they couldn't count it all. They worked hard. They perfected everything. They had this pragmatic, systematic work ethic that made them the most powerful nation in the world, and they integrated technology into their society to be successful. Sound familiar? In addition to their hardworking, ethical, no, I shouldn't say ethical, but their, their work ethic, their drive to obtain more and more material possessions, it was contrasted with their weekends of debauchery. So not only did they have this incredible work ethic where they could just get more, 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 where they were obsessed with obtaining, what they were obsessed with consuming. Sound familiar? Where they were, uh, they were obsessed with their, their instant gratification of more, and they had this desire for pleasure as well. They, they took pleasure in drinking. They took pleasure in partying. They took pleasure in the, the desires of their flesh. Um, they even took pleasure in hunting animals. They were known for hunting lions. There's incredible pictures of them killing lions. It was like one of their favorite things to do. And so they had a lifestyle that worked hard. And yet they partied hard. Does this sound familiar? You work hard and you party even harder. And that is the best that life has to offer. And that's what, that's what this is going on. This is why the book of Nahum is so important. Because what he's saying is, he's saying this, this city of Nineveh, and the, we're not quite sure who the leader is at this point, but he says a man has raised, one man has raised himself up that is leading Nineveh. One man has raised himself up in opposition to God. Well, we saw Jesus and the one that brings the gospel, the good news of peace, and his feet are blessed. But in contrast, there is the one that has raised himself up in Nineveh. Are you ready for this? He, we know this guy. Maybe the historians can't quite figure out who it is. Is it Sennacherib? Is it Asdrubal? They don't know who it is. But I'm going to tell you, I know who it is. It's the guy in red tights. <laughs> He's got the pitchfork and the horns. 
we haven't really read a whole lot about the devil and, and you know, going through the Bible because he was there at the day of creation in the form of the snake. Uh, we're going to see him when we talk about Job a little bit. But he's under, he is under the, the current. He has not surfaced. The enemy of God has not been revealed for who he is. All the, the evil is represented in the other gods, but there is no Satan. And Nahum reveals him here. Nahum says that there has been one man, and we'll say it this way, there has been an antichrist that has raised himself up to, against the knowledge of God. And this gets manifested in two areas. The, the, the desire and the, the consumption for material wealth, that drive to get more, that love of mammon, that love of money. What's the root of all evil, folks? You know the root of all evil? It is the love of money. Money in and of itself, tangible objects in and of themselves are okay, but it is the desire, it is making it the idol above God that is, that is the root of all evil. How are you doing with the finances? Do you like the paper stuff or do you like God? I, you know, it's, it is that desire to accumulate more that is the spirit of Antichrist. So there's that one thing. There is that driving desire to accumulate more. Now here, I, need, I, think, I, need, to make, I think I need to say this. Um, I'm saying it's bad to want more, sort of. Because the Bible also says that laziness is the devil's workshop. So I'm not promoting a lazy attitude. Like, well, Pastor Josh says that I shouldn't accumulate stuff, eh, right? But the, the, you know, laziness is the devil's workshop. So there we, that's another sermon altogether. But that desire for more, that wealth that said, I did it. I built myself up of my own bootstraps. I did this. This is my empire. What is that? That's pride, okay? Root of all evil, right there. And then, some of you have experienced this. I have, I have never experienced this in my entire life, right? But some of us have experienced that work, and then what do you need at the, on the weekend? You need the release. I have no idea what that experience is. I've never partied a day in my life. No idea. It's just you guys. It's you sinners that need to repent of this. But right, you, you know, it's that attitude. I work hard and, so that I can party harder. Why do we do this? It's because the way that we are created, we have to. You have to have an outlet. And it's almost like a spiritual thing, folks. Like, you can't. I mean, maybe you know people that have worked themselves into the grave. Why? It's because they don't have that outlet, right? Now, I'm not promoting partying on the weekend, not promoting drinking on the weekend, but our, our psyche, our soul, our maybe even our spirit, our consciousness has got to break from this material world. That's why the Assyrians did it. They had to have a break from that material world, so they, they, they delved themselves into the desires of the flesh on the weekend. They drank, they took hallucinated drugs, everything. Does this apply today? Absolutely. Because everybody's got that hippie neighbor, right? 
and they, it's partly truth. They have actually discovered something, that there is more to life than gaining material objects and working. And you hear them say this, I am spiritual, but I'm not religious. But see, they, they, they've understood a, a, a dimension of how God's created them. God has created them to be spiritual. And so they just kind of take it to the extreme opposite, actually. It's actually a counterfeit of what God offers us. So what, is, what does this all mean for us as believers, as Christians? All right. So the guy in red tights, pitchfork, you know, pointy horns, his one, his one goal, his one desire is to make sure that you don't worship God. That's all he cares about. He doesn't want you to have a spiritual connection with your creator. Look, if he wins that, he wins the whole shebang. You know what that means for the church? That means that we can actually be sitting in the church and be self-deceived. Because we think that what, what God really wants is for us to be good. He does. But morality is secondary. He wants us to be connected to his spirit. He wants us to worship in spirit and in truth. That's his, that, that is what's God's desire, and that's the number one thing that the devil wants to block because he wants that praise. The devil, uh, Lucifer, the archangel, his number one, he was an angel before he was the devil. Before he was fallen, before he became wicked and evil and ugly and cruel, he was the most beautiful creation that God had ever made. He was, he was this angel, and his purpose was to take creation's praise. All creation praises God. We do here on Sunday, and then the earth cries out and worship to God, and the pulsars in the galaxy are all worshiping God. And Lucifer's role, his one purpose in his life, was to take the creation, the praise from creation, and amplify it through himself into God's presence, into God's throne room. And he became jealous of our praise towards God, and he wanted it for himself, that sin of pride that happens. And so this is the player that we have going on in Nineveh, the man in red tights, the, the literal, real devil himself. He is playing this scene, and he has created a society based on greed and indulgence. The devil's not after you. He is in some major world power. I have a couple of ideas where he might be. Think about our society. We are a pleasure-based society. We, we are, we are we're consumers. I hate to even use that name about myself, but I know that it's true. I know that I have been wired to the patterns of this world. And the pattern of the world that says you must gain material so that you can have more pleasure is the pattern of the world. Paul saw it. I hope that you see it when you read Nahum. I hope that you see this pattern. More stuff equals more pleasure. That is the pattern of the world. Paul says, don't conform to the pattern of the world. 
be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, I don't have time to get into the renewing of the mind because I want you to, first of all, see the pattern of the world. And my goal, I hope I get this communicated to you. This has got, I don't know if, I, if it hits like first service. It's got to hit this service. You've got to see this. Because I'm telling you that, okay, if you need an outlet, if you need a release, if you need to take the drink, if you need to escape from reality, and I don't know, do people still drop acid? What do we do nowadays? <laughs> I have no idea what we do. Back in the day, we used to drop acid. I don't know. Why do we do it? We have to have an escape, right? Here's the thing, church. You have to get this. You're wired that way. Jesus made you that way. And so when we come into the church or people come into the church and maybe they, maybe they are a slave to that stuff, and Pastor Josh gets up there and he says, God wants to take that away from you. He wants to take away your, ex- this is going to sound new agey and weird, but I don't know how else to explain it. He's gonna, God wants to take away your expanded consciousness that you received when you drank that ayahuasca brew in the Amazon jungle with your hippie friends. God wants to take away that experience, and he wants to sit you in the pew so that you can become bored Jesus talks specifically about this. He says, when you get your house cleaned, look, God's calling a lot of us to clean our houses. He says, when you clean your house, you make sure that you put my Holy Spirit in there because there has to, you you have to have, you are spiritual. God has made you spiritual. He wants to expand your spiritual consciousness. Does that make sense? I think one of the biggest lies that the church of Jesus Christ has adopted in is saying, okay, God wants to take these things from you, and he never wants to promote you into a higher, sounding new age, I'm sorry, I don't have any other language for it, a higher dimension of existence. But see, Jesus came to give us life and to give it to the full. That means mind, body, soul, and spirit. And we are lacking in the spirit. So this is, hopefully this isn't a guilt trip that God wants to take away your fun. No, God wants to give you the real deal. Because we've accepted a counterfeit form of spirituality for years. And we think it's normal. But God created the ultimate high. And that is being in the presence of the Holy Spirit. There is no drug that is higher than that. There is no beer buzz that can equal being in the presence of God. He wants to expand your spiritual consciousness. This is a trippy message, isn't it? Hopefully it'll make sense here. Stay with me. Um, You ever been down the dumps? Raise your hand. Everybody's been down the dumps, especially as Christians. We get depressed. We get frustrated. We get disillusioned. Again, listen to Jonah last week. Isaiah is an amazing book. Isaiah is actually also linked to Nahum.
It's the, the mountains one. Look there on the mountains. The feet are those who bring good news, who proclaim peace. Celebrate your festivals, O Judah, and fulfill your vows. I mean, do we celebrate? Why can't we come into God's presence and celebrate? John's been hitting on this quite a bit lately. You're okay jumping up on your couch and screaming when your team wins the Super Bowl. But in church, all of a sudden, you become an introvert. Why is that? That's hypocrisy. That is hypocrisy. I'm not saying you don't root for your team. Wait, Dodgers, right? Dodgers is doing something right now? I'm not a sports guy. Are they going to get a touchdown or something? Are they going to win the... What? Dodger blue? Uh, they're getting there, aren't they? All right. Sorry. Isaiah 52. How beautiful on the mountains and the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, you watchmen. Lift up your voices. All right, I should, I'm going to mess around with the scripture. Listen, you watchmen, and listen, you watchwomen. Is that a word? Can I make that up? Watchwomen? You have to listen. And listening also requires us to lift up our voice. Uh, I am actually more, you might find this hard to believe. Because, I don't know, maybe you saw me raise my hands during worship. Sometimes I sit down and I raise my hands. Sometimes I kneel and raise my hands. Um, let's see, what's my favorite band right now? Um, One Direction. If I was at an incredible <laughs> One Direction conference, which could happen because I have a nine-year-old daughter, I could end up there if I do not repent of my sin and if I die in my sin, I'm going to spend eternity at a One Direction concert that will go on forever. That will be my hell. So hell is all subjective. But let's say I actually liked One Direction. You probably wouldn't see me raising my hands because that's not my personality type. Like, I don't know, I used to be into football. Not anymore. But when I was into football and my team won, I didn't jump up on the couch and, and say, yay, team. This wasn't who I was. And I don't know, maybe you're like me. Maybe you're like, I don't feel like raising my hands in worship. I don't feel like expressing myself to my creator. Ah, I'm a believer, not a feeler. I'm going to be, when, when the Bible tells a man to raise up holy hands, I think I'm going to do it. Whether I feel like it or not. Guess what happens when I do it? Uh, when I raise up holy hands, um, there's something changes. Like, yeah, like what he says, like, you know, you make your body do something and then spiritually something will change. It actually might be physiologic, physiologically true as well. Anyway. Listen, you watch men, watch women, lift, lift, uh, lift up your voices together, and they shout for joy. The Lord returns to Zion. They will see with their own eyes. They will burst into songs of joy together. You ruins of Jerusalem. 
For the Lord has comforted his people. All kinds of stuff going on. In, in the midst of ruin, in the midst of heartache and loss and hurt and pain, you are to do this in joy. You are to lift up your voices. You are to hear with your voice. Hear with your voice. Is that an oxymoron? Hear with your voice. For the Lord has comforted his people. Do you, you need comfort? I do. Every time I turn on the news, I need some comfort. Nahum is a pretty heavy book, right? I don't know if, you, if you've read it. It's pretty heavy. Like it's, again, the language is vivid. It's strong. It's poetically intense. Yet, do you know what? It says uh, here, it says, the Lord has comforted his people. You know what Nahum's name translates to? It's comforter. So God is our comforter. Um, you need, you're crying out to God, God, hear my prayers. You know, strengthen me, Lord. Have you ever prayed that one? I pray that all the time. It's completely legitimate to pray, God, would you please strengthen me? And whenever I pray that, you know what God tells me? He says, you have, you, you have to strengthen yourself in the Lord. I don't, I don't understand. I don't know. That doesn't make any sense. God, I'm weak. I'm a broken vessel. I need to be built up and boistered up. Will you help me? And God, God says, and, and he says, you have to choose to strengthen yourself. All right. How do you do that? In Isaiah 40, same theme, same, uh, almost same chapters, we're getting close to it. At the end of 40, Isaiah 40, it says, uh, let me read it, because I forgot the first part. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. So God does give strength to the weary and increases power to the weak. Even youth grow tired and weary, and young men will stumble and fall. Okay? But those who have hope in the Lord, they will renew their strength. Okay, so based, what he's saying is, yes, strength does come from the Lord, but you are responsible for renewing your own strength. You have to partner with God on this. I think that's what he's trying to say. You have to renew your own strength. Okay? Uh, I'm reading NIV. Mine says, but those who have hope in the Lord will renew their own strength. Anybody have King James? Yours says, those who wait on the Lord, right? Yeah. And then I think it's NASB says, those that trust in the Lord will renew their own strength. Um, I don't really need to get into the Hebrew on this because any one of these words is going to work. Some of us need to be waiting on the Lord to renew our strength. It, is, it goes against the pattern of this world because I was born into a fast food culture and I want it and I want it now and I'm not going to wait. And I can't quite figure out why God is, why is taking God three years to answer my prayer? That is way too long, God. <laughs> I mean, in reality, we're like, God, I prayed this an hour ago <laughs> and you have not answered my prayer. Where is my prophetic word? Where is my mysterious phone call that is supposed to precede an in-depth prayer with you? And as soon as we go there, as soon as we begin to complain about God's response time, we get weak. For those that wait upon the Lord 
will strengthen themselves. How long do you need to wait to get strong? What if it's hope? What if that hope for the future? Those that hope upon the Lord will strengthen themselves. Is it hope? Like a lot of Christians are hopeless nowadays. And I can, I'll give you the antidote to that in a minute. But it's like, you're just giving up hope. Like you just don't, I know God loves me, but I just don't have much hope that he's going to answer my prayer. Or the other one, the other translation, trust. Are you really putting your trust in the Lord or are you putting your trust in other things? Are you putting your trust in your own abilities? And I think this is probably the difficult one for everybody that is an American is that we can, we, we, we just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We make it happen because it is a lot easier for us to trust our own abilities than to trust some outside force or outside person. Have you ever put your trust into somebody and that person let you down? And your, your, what your response is, I am never going to put my trust into somebody again. We project that, we project that dysfunction onto God. And God is saying, if you want to strengthen yourself, you must trust in me. Hard to do. This is where it gets fun. And those that hope, those that trust, and those that wait on the Lord, they will mount up on wings of eagles, and they will soar on wings of eagles. This is what you got to get. They will soar on wings like eagles. It does not say they will mount up on the wings of a hummingbird. It's wings of a hummingbird. Just work, 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 work. And hummingbirds, they stay in one spot. And they got this really nervous, like, like a poodle on caffeine energy. <laughs> they do not soar. They work themselves into the ground in order to get God's pleasure or in order to feel important, to get this accomplishment. But again, that is a false sense of reality, of trusting in the Lord. And they, they, they die. Like occasionally we have, um, I don't know, like if, you, if, if you're here on church and then you see me like, uh, like in the atrium area like trying to, like beating on the glass, it's because we're trying to save a hummingbird because they always end up in the atrium here. And if we do not get them within a day, they're dead because like they eat their weight in nectar every day or something crazy like that. They cannot... Hummingbirds cannot soar. Martha's can't soar. You know the story of Mary and Martha? Martha is working herself to death. She is a busy little bee. She is a hummingbird whose wings are going a million miles an hour in order to get Jesus to pay attention to like her. When the whole time Jesus is liking her, as she is, but she's like that nervous little poodle on caffeine and she's got to work, 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 work. And she's falling into a pattern of the world that is not healthy, that's destructive. And what Jesus says specifically to, Mary, to Martha, he says, Martha, you are so anxious about a many thing. Your prettier sister has chosen the better path. doesn't say that. I made that up. <laughs> but it says your sister, but girls, you know what I'm talking about, right? Your sister has chosen the better path, and she's sitting at my feet. She is worshiping me. 
And guess what? She is soaring. They will soar on wings of eagles, not wings of sparrows. So some of us have got the busy little bee thing. We're just buzzing around all over the place. We're working ourselves into the grave. We think that we're doing it for Jesus, and Jesus doesn't like us anymore because he just can't handle our, our nervous behavior. I'm just kidding. Jesus likes you. But he wants, to, he wants you to sit at his, his feet and rest in his presence so that you can soar. And another one of the major counterfeits that we've adopted in our spiritual life is that we have mounted up on wings of sparrows, not eagles, wings of sparrows, and we are gliding from here to there to here to there to the next pretty tree, the next nice environment, the next closest worm, and we think we have convinced ourselves that we are soaring when, in fact, we are doing nothing more than gliding. And the thing that is actually keeping us up is pulling us down. We are, uh, we are working against the very force of gravity, a pattern of this world that is sucking us down and down and down. And we think we're soaring when we're only gliding from here to there. And we have not been empowered. But you see, when you are soaring on wings of eagles... You catch thermals. It is something that happens that is not within your own power. It is something spiritually, a spiritual thermal is God's power through the Holy Spirit that comes up through his creation and you hit the opportunity to catch a thermal and to soar, not in your power, not to glide with your brain, but to soar in God's supernatural power. Eagles are designed to soar. You, my brothers and sisters, are designed to soar. When you've accepted Jesus into your heart, you are, you'll become an eagle. And eagles, instinctively, they've got this built into some part of their brain, but instinctively, they can sniff out or sense or feel a thermal. This, this, this heat that rises up, and I guess it goes like in, 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 in vortexes. They, could, they know where they're at, and they find them, and they catch these thermals, and they soar, and it is effortless. Wouldn't that be an amazing thing if life was a little bit effortless at the moment? Or maybe, I don't know, maybe you had to drop down and kill and eat something, which happens. But you know, where's the next thermal? I'll tell you where there's one. Right here, right now, once a week, on a Sabbath, you have the opportunity to catch a thermal. I don't know how you do it when, you, when, you're, when you're attending church once a month. I think, that you, I think people that are once-a-monthers, they have adopted a, a pattern of this world that says, party is just as good. I can detach from the pain of life by drinking, by whatever, concerts, whatever. I can, I, can, I can have my escape. And we think that that's church. Like it's like a spiritual disconnect. And we, we, we think that that is okay. And again, my, my, my desire is that I'm not saying you need to stop enjoying your expanded consciousness. Jesus never said that. Jesus is saying, I've got something better for you. To be baptized in the Holy Spirit. I 
And so I, I think that's my message for you today. Where, are, are you an eagle? And if you are an eagle, can you sense the thermals? There's one right here. Here's like when you when you like Monday, when 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 you've jumped off this thermal, and you you, you got to go into the world and hunt something down and kill it and eat it in order to survive. You got to pay your bills. Did you know that there are thermals out there in the world too? That God is living and breathing and active in everyday life, not just inside these four walls. There's thermals outside of this building. There's a vortex that as a smart eagle that's, that's got his instincts tuned up, his spiritual instincts tuned up, you can catch those thermals and you can live an empowered life. It requires trust, hope, and waiting on the Lord. How do you do that? Now we'll talk about the renewing of the mind later. All right, I think I'm done. John, come on up. I think one of the biggest lies that the man in red tights can tell us is that God wants to take away all of our joy, all of our pleasure, and he wants us to be miserable in church. He wants, to, he wants, he wants us to suffer. He wants us to dumb down our life experience. That could be furthest from the truth. Again, Jesus says, I have come to give you life and to give it to the full, meaning that I'm going to get into, the Holy Spirit is going to get into your consciousness, and it's going to expand it into an experience that is full. Not just all about me, but is the fullness of joy and hope and love in him. So I want to encourage you this week. All right, I want you to recognize what the patterns of this world are. Don't align yourself with them. Deny the patterns of this world. If you are actually involved in these things, if they, are, if they give you pleasure, if you're taking joy in it, if it is your escape, I say, Holy Spirit, I want to take it out and I want to replace it with you instead. Best high you'll get, guarantee it. Heavenly Father, I give the ushers come to the front. Heavenly Father, right now, we, we thank you for your word that is so vivid and vibrant and real. We thank you that you are a jealous God, that you care, that you have emotions, Holy Spirit, that you can be grieved and quenched. And so, God, right now, we put our faith and our hope. We wait on you. Help us to soar this week. Help us to recognize where you're at and how to draft off of others if we're not there. Give us the ability to strengthen ourselves in the Lord this week. We pray this in your name. Amen.